The title of this evening's talk <clears throat> is The Liberating Embrace of Anicca, Impermanence. And from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And from Crowfoot, who was the leader of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe in the um, early uh, 1920s. What is life? It's the flash of a firefly in night. It's the breath of buffalo in wintertime. It's the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And from physicist, astronomer, and writer Adam Frank, who very recently said this, from birth to the unknown, from birth to the unknown moment of our passing, we ride a river of change. And yet, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, we exhaust ourselves in an endless search for solidity. We hunger for something that lasts, some idea or principle that rises above time and change. We hunger for certainty. That's a big problem, he says. It might even be the problem. A Tibetan monk uh, told me about a place where he grew up in a very isolated um, high area of the mountains in Tibet where people have no access to matches. And of course there's no electricity or gas for light and warmth and cooking. So for these necessities of life in this part of the world, a fire is necessary. To start a fire without matches uh, each day is a, a big project. It takes quite some time. So the people in this area never let their fires go out completely. All day, every day, they keep a small fire burning. And at night, they cover it with ashes so that in the morning there's at least a glowing coal, a coal or two, to start their day with. The Buddhist monks in this area practice so deeply with impermanence as their practice that at night they don't try to save any coals because they're so sure that in the morning they might not be alive. And also, they, when they finish their last cup of tea at night, they turn their cup over for the same reason, to let the next person know that they finished, really finished. So, in a sense, every night they prepare to die. They're ready. The deep knowing and living with impermanence is an entryway, a gateway to liberation 
a gateway to freeing the mind, freeing the heart. The only thing that we can really know for sure is the constancy of change. It's the most basic fact of our existence. Nothing lasts. Nothing stays the same. So paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of anicca, impermanence. The wisdom, the understanding of anicca is really the bedrock of the Buddha's teachings. It was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and grew up in search of a path to awakening, to enlightenment. Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha, so to say, uh, grew up in very comfortable and protected surroundings. In an area of uh, India at the foot of the Himalayan mountains, now known as Nepal. Seeming living the good life. His father and his mother were the king and queen of the Sakyan clan in that area. At Siddhartha's birth, a local wise man told his parents that this baby would grow up to be either an exceptionally wise ruler or if he, uh, um, or he would become a renunciate uh, and a great spiritual teacher if he encountered great suffering. Well, his parents, the king and the queen, in order to keep him on the kingly track, they set about to protect their son from encountering suffering. This is from one of the Buddha's discourses to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Benares. My turban was from silk, was of silk from Benares, as were my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dew and dirt. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from that palace. But all of this protection and luxury and sensual pleasure just couldn't keep him. It didn't satisfy. At one point, as young people are wont to do, Siddhartha wanted to go out and, on his own and see what life was like beyond the palace walls. So he asked his good friend, Chana, the chariot driver, to take him on a ride through town. Well, his father heard about this uh, happening and he ordered everything and everyone uh, that might cause some disturbance to his son to be taken off the streets, to be taken out of view. But as we know, 
it's just not possible to have this kind of uh, control over life. Not long after Chana and young Siddhartha were out beyond the palace walls, Siddhartha saw a person walking down the road with a lot of difficulty, covered with oozing sores. He'd been quite protected. He'd never seen anything quite like this before. And he asked Chana, what is this? What's wrong with this person? And his friend responded, this is a very sick person. We all get sick. You'll get sick. I'll get sick. Your parents will get sick. At some point, everyone gets sick. Well, this was a disturbing sight to Siddhartha. So he told Chana he wanted to go home. And he spent quite a restless night that night. But he wanted to go out again the next day, so they did. On down the road, Siddhartha noticed someone moving very slowly, bent over with a cane, dry, wrinkled skin, very thin, wispy hair. And he hadn't seen anything quite like this before. He said to Chana, what's the matter with this person? And Chana responded, this is an old person. Everyone gets old. You'll get old. Your parents will get old. I'll get old. All your friends will get old. Well, Siddhartha said, "Um, let's go home. And he spent another restless night. But the next day he wanted to go out again, so they did. And as they're uh, going along the road and getting closer to town, Siddhartha sees a group of people all dressed in white, crying and wailing and carrying a plank above their heads with something on it that was covered with cloth. And Siddhartha said, what's that? What's this? And what is it that they're carrying? And Chana said, this is a funeral procession. procession. They're carrying a dead body. Everyone dies. I'll die. You'll die. Your parents will die. Everybody dies. Well, this was disturbing to Siddhartha. He said, okay, it's enough today. Let's go home. And that night he barely slept. But he wanted to go out again the next day, so they did. And it wasn't very long before Siddhartha noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth walking down the road. And he was walking with a lightness and a grace and a flow about him and bearing an air of peacefulness and ease. And Siddhartha said to Chana, who's that? And Chana responded, this man's a renunciate, a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. And and Siddhartha responded and said, let's go home. This is enough. It's said that because of Siddhartha's many lifetimes of development into an extremely sensitive and compassionate human being, the sights that he saw, what are called the four heavenly messengers, sickness, old age, death, and a truth-seeking, uh, a truth-seeker, a yogi, He struck him very deeply, struck him quite profoundly. He was moved by the impermanent, insubstantial nature of life 
that the first three messengers displayed, and also by the obvious suffering that he witnessed in relationship to these first three encounters. And he found himself quite interested and powerfully drawn towards what the fourth heavenly messenger represented, seeking peace, seeking freedom, seeking the truth. Again, from one of the Buddha's discourses. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me, when an untaught person subject to aging, to illness, to death, not beyond any of this, sees another who is aged, ill, or dead, She or he is often horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious to himself that he or she too is subject to aging, illness, and death. And if I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who was old, ill, or dead, that would not be fitting for me. As I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which is also subject to disease, aging, and death? And the Buddha goes on, Monks, there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, and intoxication with life. I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, and often uh, quite unconsciously, is the myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and consequential it is to experience just one moment of really, truly, fully absorbed in the feeling of metta. He also said that even more powerful and fruitful than this is when one there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in practice where one knows very clearly and surely the momentary nature of all appearances. The powerful direct experience and deep knowing of impermanence. The seed of liberation, the seed of freedom, lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. And again, some words from the Buddha. What is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. And what has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom.
everything in this world, everything in this universe begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. Every form of life, every object, every relationship, every sensation, every thought, every feeling, every mind state, every perception, every experience, every breath, the world of form outside and the world of form within, none of it is static. Our earth feels, for most of us, quite solidly here, seems kind of permanently in place, as we know it. Some time ago I received a postcard from a friend that had a beautiful photograph on its front side. It was some sand dunes with mountains behind them. And looking at this photo was really a very pleasant experience. And then I turned the card over, uh, and this was the explanation on the back. The gypsum forming these sand dunes originated from the dry flats 20 miles west of the park deposited as seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago, when an ocean covered this area, creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago, when this region was uplifted and erosion began, the eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks, and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up, up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains. So after reading that, I turned the card back to the photo side and saw it with a different eye, and yet really still with a very pleasurable feeling in in viewing a, a beautiful photograph. The places that we live in appear and often feel to us as though they've forever been the way they are now, or at least somewhat forever been the way they are now. And our attitude and our actions often reflect this. I uh, taught the Dhamma in Israel every few years for a period of about 10 years, a place where... uh, where so much strife has been going on for centuries about whose place it is. And at one point I found out that Jerusalem, a city that's built of rock, built on rock, of rock, Jerusalem stone, some of you may know of it, that that city has been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the centuries. With all of the traveling that I've done over the years, there have been times when I've looked up into the sky to find uh, stars and formations of stars that are familiar. Kind of like meeting uh, and seeing old friends no matter where one is. I found uh, a piece in the newspaper called Andromeda is Coming that I'd like to share with you. Our Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy, but you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. 
The most likely scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It would then take perhaps a hundred million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. Another burst of star formation will then occur, with winds from the shock waves driving out remaining gas and dust. After that, old and new stars will intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. There will be no trace of the Earth, save perhaps for the 1970s era Pioneer and Voyager probes that are now beyond the solar system. The fireworks aren't due for more than five billion years, long after the sun has burned out and reduced the Earth to a frigid cinder. Five billion years from now, we'll all be dead anyway, said Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. And he went on to say, However, if we move out to the stars someday, the stars someday, our descendants will certainly witness that from somewhere else in the galaxy. The word form implies for us solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming, coming together and coming apart, constantly and without end. So our world really can't be solidly objectified. Our world, both internally and externally, isn't a noun, it's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time, we only know this as an abstraction, as a concept. And actually, I think even more, we forget it, or we ignore it, or we're constantly distracting ourselves from it by accumulating and by planning and by living in and out of memories, by fantasizing, hoping, expecting, coveting, fearing. If we rigidly, tightly hold on to how we want the future to be, or even how you want your next sitting to be. All of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then, inevitably, we come to face disappointment or anger or judgment or sadness or grief. And we've really then missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed our appointment with life. And we're reinforcing, we're perpetuating the delusion perpetuating a false sense of control and permanence. So actually, much of the time, we're practicing permanence. Much of the time, we maybe almost desperately want everything to stay as it is, to continue as we know it, or to become the way we want it to be. So much so that we believe we have control, that things will do what we want them to do. But this belief is really only make-believe, made-up beliefs. As our practice deepens and we begin to sense and see and know more clearly, we discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality. And that the tighter we grasp onto our beliefs, the more limited our life is. 
A good question you might ask yourself now and then is, how often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs, with all of their assumptions and sometimes misinformation and varying and changing opinions and ideas about this and that, and then hold on to it all quite tightly. As we learn to pay a kind of extraordinary attention to our experience of body and mind through our practice, we begin to directly touch to experientially know the constant rapidity of change. From the seeming solid substantiality of form to the smaller, maybe even minute, micro-changes in sensations to the seeming substantiality, the seeming substantiality of thoughts that just fly through the mind. There's a Tibetan teaching that says all thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. There's a story that... (coughs) I was told is true about a particular physicist who had uh, done a great deal of research on matter and its components, breaking it all down and finding nothing substantial. And it's said that at that point, this physicist went a little bit crazy and he started uh, wearing huge padded slippers all the time just in case he fell through the floor. In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear, why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena, change? The beginnings and the endings, the births and the deaths, Why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life? Without Anicca, there would be no life. And from the Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, if there's no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you will never have an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. Looked at from this perspective, Anicca is actually an amazing natural marvel. The universal movement of the constant change and cycling of life on the planet and the possibility of immediate presence with the potential joys in the changing process. Not getting caught up, not getting lost, and sinking in hopes and fears and attachments and regrets. We might consider that all of the life on the planet is dying all of the time. In similar volume, for instance, new life, as the new life that 
bring such beauty and joy and delight to us each spring. And the new day or the new life that greets us every single morning when we wake up. And from the writer William Blake, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So how might we move into a deeper exploration and acceptance of the changing nature of things, of the way of things, of our nature as nature? There are many, many doors for us in our practice, many doors for us in our life. It's said that the Buddha has presented 84,000 Dhamma doors possible Dhamma doors. A very practical example related to meditation, to our meditation practice. You've been sitting for an hour. Good hour. And the thought coming through, ah, this is good. I'll, I'll just stay here for another hour or maybe even more. Then strong bodily pain sensations and the legs start up. Maybe you continue to cling very tightly to your agenda, your hope, your preference to sit another hour and get through the pain or put up with it or tough it out. Find a way to get rid of it or maybe try to ignore it or somehow pretend it's not there so that you can meet your preference, so that you can meet your goal. This relationship to pain makes it a thing, something solid, something substantial, a concept, and something to control, so that you can continue with what you've chosen to do, to the, the set idea that you think will lead to your awakening, sitting another hour. Or maybe you relate to the pain, the discomfort in the legs, via the without mind, meaning a mind not made up, a mind, a heart without any preference or any agenda, and maybe even without the concept of pain. You might simply, directly, and intimately connect with what is. Seeing all the various sensations occurring in your leg and noticing them changing and moving. Recognizing that this sit right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static, no preference, no clinging to anything in those moments, including a time frame. Just being with, seeing, sensing, and knowing experience in the midst of the truth of how it is. This is fertile ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom.
the Dharma door, the mirror of the changing seasons around us and within us. Many years ago during a three-month retreat that I was sitting at the Insight Meditation Society, I was taking a slow walk through the forest out back. And it was during the height of autumn color in New England. I was seeing the ground literally carpeted with rich reds and shades of brown and clear yellows and shimmering golds and greens. It was beautiful. And then, well, actually, as I was looking at it, I was really quite immersed, quite immersed in this experience. And then, all of a sudden, a knowing came in. It really wasn't through thought, but a deep intuitive sense that this beauty is death that the world is dying at this moment in its unbearable beauty. And I cried. I cried on and off for a couple of days. Not continuously, but uh, quite deeply at times. I was grieving the loss of the world, so to say, feeling my heart breaking, and at the same time, elated. Though still on a conceptual level to some degree, it was an opening. An opening and a release. Soon after this experience, uh, a friend, uh, a Buddhist nun friend who was also sitting the retreat, gave me this haiku. When with breaking heart I realize this world is only a dream, the oak tree looks radiant. This constant cycling and circling, the universal movement of life, light, dark to light, rainstorm to sunshine to cloud cover, changing sensations in the body, the movement and changing sensations of the breath. As we look more closely at our own process through our practice, we might begin to see that we've been living under a kind of assumed identity. The assumed solidity of our body and thoughts, often quickly followed along by clinging on to the thoughts and the feelings and emotional states all of the habitual fixations we live with and believe and call our own, call me and mine, and think that this is who we are. As we practice, we begin to experience, sense, and see more directly, clearly, and more often that things, that the phenomena of our life aren't necessarily as they appear, or at least as they've appeared up until now. We begin to experience the whole thing, or at least parts of it, as process happening, as changing sensations, changing feelings, as various changing manifestations of the myriad formations of mind and body. 
each with particular qualities and flavors and textures that are constantly changing in themselves on both the gross and very subtle level. And so our relationship to all of the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. The compulsive, addictive grasping, trying to hold on to the passing show, begins to loosen its strong attraction. Trying to control what's actually uncontrollable, ungovernable, this ongoing miracle of constant change we call life begins to soften as we open our heart and hands. And we begin to see how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath the impulse to control, the fear of being in and with life as it is, begins to relax and open and weaken. The fear begins to fade as we surrender more deeply to the truth of the moment. And so now we're practicing impermanence, practicing anicca. When a particular Dhamma student uh, here in New Mexico began to connect more deeply with the truth of Anicca and the understanding that he didn't have any control over the unfolding events. And as he expressed it, he not only saw more honestly and clearly and began to accept that his day never went just as he planned it, he also began to see and accept that his aging body was no different than the day. He recognized that this too was simply unfolding, undoing according to conditions that he had absolutely no control over. In a practice interview one evening, he told me that he was beginning his sit each morning before going to work with forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it started. Because in his words, it never goes as I plan, hope, expect, dream it to be. This man's habit for many years had been one of aversion, primarily a a stance of irritation, anger at, taking an offensive stance towards things, people and events not going his way. His early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of the feeling that the day or his body had or was going to do something wrong, that he needed to forgive them for this. Forgiveness was really coming from the softening heart of acceptance for how it is. This softening heart was also forgiving itself for the pain that had been experienced for so many years in hardening against how things are. Hardening against the truth that things just naturally arise, change, and pass away without end.
occasionally people have asked me, as maybe sometimes you've asked yourself, or maybe others who practice, why do you practice? At one point, uh, when I was asked this, much to my surprise, out of my mouth came, I'm practicing for my death. And so it is. I am practicing for my death. On one level, so that if conditions allow, I'll have the great strength and clarity of concentration and mindfulness to be really fully present at what we think of as the big death. I think for most of us, the moment seems like it will be a a really extraordinary moment. But actually, it'll just be another moment. Another moment with all of the same principles applying that apply to any other moment. Just simply a moment to be with the immediacy of what's occurring in the body and the heart, mind. A moment like any other moment to just be as you are. A moment to be approached and connected, approached and connected with in a very fresh way. Beginner's mind, the don't know mind. A moment, in fact, that had never, has never been experienced before. So in the overall perspective of practice, I'm practicing towards the possibility of being present for, in, and with this moment. But over the years, the momentary reality of much of practice in the here and now has been with a mindful presence that recognizes and relinquishes the ways the so-called self keeps recreating this assumed identity, this delusion of a separate, solid, static me, recognizing the habitually learned patterns that support selfing and letting go, relinquishing again and again and again. One way this could be said is that it's a practice of seeing the death of who I've thought I was and recognizing the truth of who I am. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, minute deaths, moment to moment, even just breath by breath, and in ways that we never could have imagined or expected. As practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, and surrender to this utterly natural phenomena. The assumed solidity, the assumed identity of me, I, and you, that's seems so frightening to uh, let go of is seen through our practice more and more just as process, beginning, changing, and ending, 
again and again, every minute, every second, through each sense door, if we're really attentive. The acceptance of change and the acceptance of life and the nature of life, the acceptance of the forming and the unforming, the birth and the death, is really, truly the acceptance of life and the nature of life. All of the aspects of who we think we are just keep changing, including what we think we want, what we think we need. Our desires that so often seem so clear and strong and so right at any given moment, these too can and do change, and sometimes quite rapidly, as I'm sure you've noticed at times. As we learn to pay closer and closer attention, we see that pleasant experience sometimes changes into unpleasant experience and vice versa. We see that pleasant and unpleasant can very quickly move into likes and dislikes and then rapidly move into seeming needs or strong rejections. We see that we're momentarily relatively happy. We're momentarily relatively unhappy. All relative conditioned states of mind, totally dependent on a whole set of conditions, which are themselves also changing moment to moment. States of anger, irritation, resentment, judgment, feeling so solid and seem so right and so absolute. As we looked at some evenings ago, anger is a very powerful, very energetic, very passionate energy. With a clear attention into anger, seeing and knowing and letting go of identification, letting go of self-referencing, my anger, my righteous anger, letting go of this contracted, self-centered quality inherent in anger, meaning pulling out the thread of self, we can then clearly see what's actually taking place from all sides, from all perspectives. There's a clear presence, an immediate connection with the possibility then of anger transforming into a mirror-like wisdom out of which can spring appropriate, compassionate action, if necessary. As we learn to receive experience with more clarity and ease, we begin to see ourself as well as others, with less judgment. We might also begin to see that we are, to whatever degree, also still acting out of and have in the past acted out of ignorance and forgetfulness. Acted out, or more accurately, reacted out of old, conditioned, habituated places of suffering many, many times ourselves. And so we change. 
we begin to meet ourself as well as others with more open-hearted clarity and more compassion. The 13th century Zen master Dogen spoke about Buddha nature and its relationship to impermanence. He said, we do not just have Buddha nature, we are Buddha nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness and ephemerality, their impermanence, not only is understanding great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight, great compassion, impartial care, love, that might include one's enemy. Probably most of us, at least at times, have had a very strong identification with our face and our body in relationship to how it looked when we were younger. When my mother was in her late 80s and early 90s, there were times when the two of us would find ourselves standing next to each other in front of a mirror, looking at ourselves and looking at each other. And at one point when we were doing this, she said uh, to herself and to me, I see an old woman. It's so strange. She kept repeating it over and over. It's so strange, it's so strange. I see an old woman. I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. Now when I look in the mirror, I say the same thing. (laughs) Once when she was 91, and we were doing this, she said, I look older than everybody else in the whole world, she said. And then she added, it doesn't match how I feel inside. It's so strange, it's so strange, she said. So is it strange? I mean, really. Is it strange? Stranger than what? It's just life doing its thing. It's just life being lifey. In a poem from uh, an Israeli poet, Rahel Chalfi, called Such Tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt. Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom, not faults of an earthquake. An airy network, cracks of horror. How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a net of grieving nerves. Fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines so that we can withstand it all. Such beauty such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us. Graciously prepare us, tell us in whispers little by little, 
hour by hour that they are leaving. Have you ever looked in the mirror at your face for a long time? Really just focused and looked for a while. It keeps changing. Just keeps on changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? Once in a long retreat that I was sitting, uh, uh, I sat outside observing the grasses each day uh, in the late fall, noticing that, noticing how the grass was losing its moisture, drying up, losing its color, changing shape, changing form, curling over being quite acutely aware of this day by day. Are we really different than this? What's the Dhamma of grass? No matter how much moisturizer we use, no matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how many energetic walks we take or how much yoga we do, no matter how much good healthy food we eat, our skin dries out, our hair loses its color, our bodies change shape. No matter who we are or how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep. And there's nothing we can do about it. And some words from the Buddha. Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one one perceives impermanence, Mekia, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. I think I actually shared this same quote uh, in another Dhamma talk earlier on in the retreat. And um, a poem by uh, a woman named Liesel Mueller. She calls it fugitive. My life is running away with me. The two of us are in cahoots. I hold still while it paints dark circles under my eyes, streaks my hair gray, stuffs pillows under my dress. In each new room, the mirror reassures me I'll not be recognized. I'm learning to travel light, like the juice in the power line. My baggage swallowed by memory, weighs almost nothing. No one suspects its value. When they knock on my door, badges flashing, I open up. I don't match their description. 
Wrong room, they say, and apologize. My life in the corner winks and wipes off my fingerprints. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep what in this culture is kind of like a secret with everything changing and aging and such multitudes doing the dying. If we're really truly inclined towards freedom, we'll have to give up the notion that change or even death is a catastrophe or detestable or avoidable or strange. Our practice directs us towards learning really directly experientially about change, the macro and micro-cycling of life, and that we, our body-mind continuum, is not somehow separated out from this process. At the age of 18... My closest high school girlfriend and I went to Stratford, Ontario for a few days to see some Shakespearean plays. And on our way home, we were in an automobile accident and my friend was killed. It was really quite amazing. One minute she was alive and driving the car and we'd had these three wonderful days together. And then the next moment she was lying in the middle of the highway, dying. And myself, with just a few scrapes and bruises. And I was washing her dying body with water, and then she was just gone. It was an extremely powerful wake-up call for me. And not long after she died, I resolved that I would live life fully every minute, every second, I think I said, because now I knew that it could just end in a second. And of course, I've forgotten my resolve many times, but I've also remembered it many times. This experience with its lucid insight into impermanence was quite a big part of what eventually guided me towards the Buddhist teachings and practice. Although in my 18-year-old self, I didn't think or word it in this way. And it's been interesting to see how this resolve to live fully every moment has unfolded over the years. There's been an ongoing letting go of many of the complexities and seeming necessities of what we call normal life. Living more fully has meant living more simply, which has allowed me to then be more fully with the moments of living, the process of change, the beginnings and endings and the births and the deaths. As a lay practitioner, This letting go or renunciation has evolved over the years to be a relinquishment of that which doesn't serve awakening. And as I'm sure many of you have found, it's a process that unfolds quite naturally. Quite naturally through our practice 
either by a conscious choice, a decision that's made between this and that, or just simply through being really present with a clear, mindful attention and responding in whatever ways are healthiest and most appropriate, both for oneself and in relationship to others. Which at times results in letting go or renouncing some of one's habitual ways of engaging or not engaging, both inwardly and outwardly. Including recognizing and letting go of some of one's attachments, which doesn't at all mean rejecting the people who are closest to us, but rather gives us the possibility of relating to them in what might be a new way. The Buddha said that living a single moment, seeing the impermanence of all things, of all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. Clear and sure insight into anicca leads us towards the end of confusion and anguish and towards understanding the cause of suffering. Very surely knowing the momentariness of all appearances opens the door of insight into the conditional, impersonal, sometimes called empty, nature of all things, of all phenomena. In our thinking, I think most of us assume that permanence provides security. But in in actuality, although a change might be very difficult and at times disturbing, at least at first, as we open to it and as we get to know it more deeply, Anicca can really be a very profound inspiration to go deeper in our practice. We may also come to realize that on one level it's really truly a gift of life. What if nothing ever changed? Can you even imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? It would be an incredible nightmare. No change, no life. In 1985, my house burned down. Uh, No one was in it when it happened. My three adult sons and I uh, were visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at the time. And a few days after we arrived at my mother's house, I received a phone call from a friend who lived down the road from our house in the Michigan woods. And he called to tell me that My house had burned to the ground. My first response was denial. I said, you're kidding. (laughs) But of course, who would call a friend, uh, call long distance on Christmas uh, with such a joke? (laughs) So after we finished our brief conversation, um, I hung up the phone and I cried uh, very hard for about 15 minutes. And my mother, who was standing right next to me, 
uh, just held me, put her arms around me and held me. And then my brother, who was also visiting, we both sat down after I stopped crying, and we talked. And by the end of our two-hour conversation, the fire turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me. I didn't have any things to bind me anymore. The spiritual path had burned its way open for me, so to say. And I'm sure, as some of you know, um, in Asian countries, it's not at all unusual for people in their 50s and 60s uh, whose family responsibilities are essentially finished to go and live out the rest of their life as a spiritual life. So to make a long story short, about one year after the fire, I went to Asia for about a year and a half and practiced uh, quite diligently, quite ardently, and then came back to the States and continued this way uh, for quite some years. If it wasn't for that fire, there's a strong possibility that I wouldn't be with you here and now in this way. That huge change was really a great gift that is still unwrapping itself. And a haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. And from Carlos Castañeda in his book Journey to Ixlan. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death just makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Not long before Carlos Castañeda died, he and three of his friends were having lunch together. And one of these friends was Michael Ventura, And he uh, wrote about that lunch. These are, this is from Michael Ventura. He was much thinner, older, obviously ill. But for all his fragility, he seemed much livelier, happier, and even funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, and her child. But still she felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? Answering the woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness or generosity of his manner. Yet a steely thing came into his voice, a tone that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, she should sit in her chair and remember that her child, her husband, everyone she loved, and herself were going to die, and that they would die in no particular order, unpredictably, Remember this every night and you'll soon have a spiritual life, said Carlos. Later in the conversation, this woman asked how she could discipline herself to follow his advice and follow it deeply so it wouldn't just be an exercise. Carlos said, you give yourself a command. 
on the page, there's no, no duplicating how he said it. He spoke quietly, but it was as though he'd suddenly jammed a knife into the tabletop. What's that mean, one of us asked. It means you give yourself a command. And that was that. A command is not a promise. A command is not trying. A command is something that must be obeyed. His tone invoked something deeper than the idea of mere will. His was a call to action. He wasn't talking about mulling or analyzing or wishing. To step on the path, you step on the path. There's no substitute for that. About a year later, the woman who asked those questions at our lunch sent a pamphlet that Carlos had requested she send to me. She sent to me. One passage goes, Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art, the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they are filled with toughness, but because they're filled with awe. Discipline is the art of feeling awe, says Carlos. And of course, the truth of Anicca must be learned over and over and over again every night. We don't grow in a straight line, but in ascending and descending and tilting circles. And what makes this all bearable is awe. That undefended, open-hearted quality we can call awe in relationship to the way of things. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's a gateway out of the suffering of self-centered existence. And we begin to understand that we're intimately interwoven into this endlessly changing, reflective web of life. And we also really, truly begin to understand the suffering in ourself and others. The suffering and the anguish that's created by trying to hold on in resisting the truth that every facet within us and surrounding us is not fixed, not permanent, not static. We in it are intricately woven together with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted net of life. About 11 years ago, I took my mother in to live with me here in my home in Taos, which turned out to be the last 15 months of her life. One early morning at the age of 92, she died in her bed. And within a short time after her death, as I was uh, sitting uh, very closely and um, uh, very intimately and attentively uh, with her body in her bedroom, I clearly saw all of the tension 
the accumulated tightness of anxiety and fear and irritation and clinging, I saw all of this just dissolve away out of her face with a transformation in my mother's face into an exquisite face of peace and ease in those moments. This experience was really a very powerful teaching and inspiration for me towards deepening my practice in the here and now with a very strong sense of why wait until death for this peace and ease? Our daily practice right here, right here in retreat and in our daily lives really brings us to confront, to sense and to receive the river of change and uncertainty, the river of anicca. Our continuing diligent practice is really bound to render us more patient, forgiving, generous, and inclusive with humor and goodwill and compassion and wisdom. As the understanding of Anicca deepens, which arises out of a continuing deepening and direct experience of impermanence. It actually brings a great relief and a lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load. There's the time and the energy available to live to our heart's content. In closing the talk this evening with a poem by Australian poet Michael Lunig He also was a cartoonist. And he drew a cartoon with most of his poems that went with the poem. The cartoon that went with this, goes with this poem, is a line drawing of a little man. And he's got uh, his left arm stretched out straight by his, out to his, out in space to the side. And in his hand is a frying pan. And in the frying pan, there's a big, uh, pile of black stuff with smoke billowing out of it and he's got his head turned looking at the frying pan with a kind of wide-eyed expression and this is the poem that goes with that drawing we give thanks for the invention of the handle without it there would be many things we couldn't hold on to as for the things we can't hold on to anyways Let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. And let's sit for just a moment.
And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.